0: Hello, fellow gamers. Today, I have a great episode for you. This time around, we are talking to Hawk Robinson of RPG Research. Uh, Hawk has developed a battery of information regarding role-playing game research and how that, re- how that, how role-playing games can be used as as therapy, as self empowerment. Uh, so many great things that he's got to talk to you about. One caveat, somewhere about maybe a fourth of the way into our discussion, the audio will shift. And since I talked so little, and Brian talked so little, and we basically gave the floor to Hawk, uh, I did not go back and edit that because I really wanted to get this out as quickly as I could. And uh, while I appreciate that that is going to be disconcerting because we sound like we're coming through a tin can and Hawk sounds like he's coming through a hi-fi speaker albeit with an oscillating fan. Um <laughs> uh nevertheless, uh it seemed like the best way to get this out quickly was to was to just put it out and and hope you guys were forgiving of the lack of sound quality in the last part of our interview. Um I think you're really gonna enjoy it. There's a lot of good information here. If you don't know anything about RPG research, this is a great place to start. And uh I look forward to your feedback on this episode. So this time around, it is myself, Brian Peace, and Hawk Robinson talking about RPG research. Welcome to Rolling for Change. My name is Woody Harris, and this is a podcast about the transformational nature of gaming. I am joined by my co-host, Brian Peace. Hello, hello. And we have special guests today, Hawk Robinson from RPG Research. Greetings and salutations. Hello. So excited to get to talk to you and and, and share with everyone the amazing work you've been doing on RPG Research.
1: Well, thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here.
0: Yes, us too. Um, So folks, I I recently got started, although I'm not really functionally started. I recently got started with a training program through uh, RPG Research, um, and I'm very excited to be a part of that, and uh, that was how I connected with Hawk. Um, But I thought it was really, I've I've often thought it was really important to get uh, Hawk onto our podcast to talk about the work he's doing because he has done a tremendous level of work to legitimize the idea of role-playing game research and role-playing games being used as a therapeutic tool and so our goal today Hawk is to kind of get into what is RPG research and what what have you how have you come to where you've come to so that it's going to be mostly autobiographical for you but for us it's going to be oh my god this is really exciting because someone's really doing this um so Maybe you could just start by talking a little bit about what RPG research is and uh,
1: what what you're doing with this with this amazing program. Okay. Uh, so RPG Research is a 501 C3 uh, charitable nonprofit organization. Uh, it's 100% volunteer run. We have over 120 volunteers across five continents now. And our goal is focusing on researching uh, the effects of all role-playing game formats, tabletop, live-action, electronic, and various hybrids, and their potential to help improve lives around the world for a wide range of populations. We've been studying the effects all the way from two years old, nonverbal autism spectrum, through brain injuries, muscular dystrophy, the deaf and hard of hearing, and many others, all the way through senior adults and everything in between. Um, And we also are an online repository of all the research we can find in the world, uh, an open and free uh, uh, repository within legal limits. You know, sometimes we can only link to and cite things. Uh, but wherever we're allowed to, we we have a, a free and open research repository. Because we believe that the open sharing of, of information it helps provide a rising tide of knowledge that floats all boats, to paraphrase others. <laughs>
0: Okay, I just want to take a beat here. You mentioned working with two-year-olds. How, how does this work with RPGs?
1: So remember, we study all formats, tabletop, live-action, electronic, and various hybrids. And so with the two-and-a-half to five-year-old nonverbal autism spectrum toddlers, we did some adaptive LARP. So we set up a... What well, we found, it, so we, it was a challenge with other recreational therapists. I'm a, I'm a Washington State uh, registered uh, Department of Health recreational therapist and also do music therapy and, and many other things. Background in computer science, neuroscience, research psychology, and a lot about uh, nursing, habilitation therapy, the list goes on. <laughs> yeah, And um, we had to, uh, a challenge, this was a uh, 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 trial project with another organization that had been doing uh, programs. Uh, their goal was to take uh, autism spectrum toddlers, peer them with the neurotypical toddlers and, and from two and a half to five years old, do this whole preschool program daily so through the Eastern Washington University and prepare them to try to be mainstreamed into the public educational system. And they ran about 12 years, so that was what their funding was for: was to do a full 12-year school cycle, basically. Okay. And it went really well. They, it was something like 90-95% were able to go through the entire school system uh, mainstream. They might need a little bit of additional support, but for the most part, they didn't have to be like special ed, separate classes, etc. Uh, really excellent program so anyway we were asked for some of their recess and off time to come up with some recreational activities that might help them with some of the additional social skills development communication problem solving etc and so i was with a group of other recreational therapists who were given a challenge to come up with an activity that was uh, a maximum 20 minutes minimum 15 minutes they the measurement of success was do they complete all of the steps of the activity and do they stay engaged for the minimum of 15 minutes and do the peers work together in some sort of cooperative way so that they're not just off doing their own thing, they're working together. Uh, All the other recreational therapists did typical tried and true various obstacle courses and challenges and activities. Uh, We took a variation of that and layered on a narrative story and incremental reward system tied in with that narrative story to turn it into basically an adaptive live action role play so it was called rescue the royal family and what they had to do is uh they needed to go save the prince queen and king from they've been kidnapped in different locations and they need to be rescued and this was just in a big gym and uh so we laid down some jump ropes some hula hoops uh, some uh, foam six sided dice that we put little images of different animals and creatures on, um, and then a little uh, faux cardboard castle, um, and some crowns and some balloons, etc. So, and we verified nobody had glo- globophobia or anything like that, you know, fear of balloons or anything. Okay. So the first step is they needed to overcome the swishing snakes, which was just these jump rope ropes on the floor and they just needed to find a way. We just explained to them, you need to get, you need to get past these snakes to go rescue the prince. And so the other rec therapist and I were sitting there swishing the snakes back and forth and they had to figure out how to get around. Now this is just a big open gym. So some kids took the very direct approach and stomped on the snakes. Okay, that works. (laughs) And then, you know, they stomped on them, stomped on them and then went on over and Uh, uh, went and saved the prince. Now the prince, each of the royal family was a big uh, 18-inch, I bought an 18-inch deck of cards and so it was a jack right from the deck. I don't remember if it was hard or spades or clubs or whatever but it was a jack from the deck and that was the prince. And they now had to carry this this large card between the two of them right through the next obstacle course until the end, get the queen, get the king. Uh, So some stomped on the snakes, some just walked around the snakes there. We put no parameters of how they solved this problem, right? That was a really easy one. Like, we'll just walk around them. <laughs> Others went ahead and joined the other side and grabbed the other end of the jump ropes and started swishing the snakes themselves, <laughs> which was great because like, hey, you control the snakes. What do you want them to do now, right? We, we just left it very open-ended for the solution. And so that was great. They, and so then they went on. They got the jack. So now they have to carry them through the rings of fire, which was a bunch of hula hoops, both on the ground or up horizontally. But you had to stay within them, or you would fall into the lava. And so that while carrying the the prince between them, they had to get through these obstacles. They had to jump from hoop to hoop. There's gap. There were gaps in between. These are two and a half to five year old. We didn't make the gaps too big. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. They're, their coordination and their legs are really short, so, you know, but uh, and, you know, we want to be physical. We want to work in We want them problem solving. And so they went through that carrying working together to, to handle the, the prince safely. They get through that and they get the queen. Woo-hoo! Now they have to carry both the queen and the jack together cooperatively without dropping them. And the next one was they had to tame whatever the beast was. There were a bunch of these uh, foam dice that we had printed out different images of different animals and, and creatures. And they were all friendly looking ones. So we had dogs and cats and birds and dragons and bears and different things. But they were like, you know, friendly ones. But what they had to do to tame the creature to set free uh, the uh, king was they had to act like the creature, either... By noise if they were able to do it verbally or by acting out physically or any combination it's up to them how they wanted to emulate the creature to tame it and make it think it was their friend and so we would roll the die and whichever one was face up that was the creature that they had to overcome and then uh, they would do that and then they get the king and then they take them onto the castle they'd have to set them up on the little castle steps there and then they got a little crown as their reward and they loved it Uh, all but all of our participants completed the full 15 minute minimum none of the other activities were they able to complete that's how profoundly uh, you know struggling the autism spectrum participants were and even regular toddlers you know it's an attention span thing Um, all of them started wandering off and doing their own thing in the other activities but ours they stayed the whole time we didn't have a problem with keeping them engaged because of the narrative and the incremental rewards etc uh, there was one, and, and this one was the most profoundly, quote unquote, impaired on the spectrum there, nonverbal, lots of stereotyped behaviors. This one stopped at the last step with the dice and started stacking the foam dice in a very set pattern and was happy as a clam to do so. And I even went so far as, as to knock over the stack to see you know, how this person would react. And, and they just happily restacked it, but in exactly the same order as before. So that was the only one that didn't complete the full task, right? They got almost there, but stopped. Uh, but they did engage the full time. But everybody else completed the full task and they loved the crowns. They were wearing them to all the other activities and, and you know if they got damaged, because they're just paper crowns, uh, they'd come back you know, begging us to fix them. And a lot of them don't like things on their heads and stuff, but yeah. it was because of the reward aspect that they had earned it that they were really proud to have that crown on their head. It didn't give them the same upset contact feeling that other times having objects on their head would. so that's that's one example program that we're particularly notable, but we've done many, many, many others, but that just gives you one example
0: that's that's amazing because what we're basically saying is that if given a narrative, then people are more children. We're going to say we're going focus on the children children especially these younger children which is surprising to me are able to focus on the narrative more than they would be able to focus on just any random uh random uh activity that was designed by some recreational therapist maybe real quick just for those who don't know can we identify the difference in what recreational therapy is and what you did there
1: um, there was no difference in what recreational therapists there. It's just that no other recreational therapist that I can find prior to me has used role playing gaming of any format as an intervention modality. But I used all of the standard recreation therapy techniques. We, that, that's what I loved about rec therapy. I I originally was, you know, I've been in a number of careers, been in healthcare since 1990, and I did the whole dot com, Silicon Valley.com thing. I was CIO and CTO. and uh, did consulting with Fortune 500 companies. I worked regularly with Microsoft, Amazon, IBM, Barnes & Noble, et cetera. Um, and then I was able to retire when I was uh, 33 to focus on raising my kids. And I was looking at going into child psychology, And uh, but all of my psychology friends kept saying, you know, you don't like that much paperwork. You're more of a doer. Why don't you look at alternative therapies? And so I, I researched heavily and eventually settled on music and recreation therapy because I already play over 20 instruments. I'm a musician as well. And, uh, uh, and I do a lot of different activities. Now, interestingly, no, I did not think of role playing gaming when I went into rec therapy. It, it, there was still so much stigma associated with it. Um, I had kept it hidden during most of my tech career, working my way up from a PC technician to director of operations to director of security to 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 corporate architect, to CIO, to CTO, I generally did not, I was a closet gamer because I saw people even in the tech career, which is considered pretty geeky, uh, passed over for promotions and opportunities because people knew that they were gamers and all of the negative stigma from the 80s and 90s and still to this day uh, was there. So I kind of just kept my mouth shut during my career. And so going to rec therapy, I was still kind of like, I didn't even think about my background in gaming as I went into it. But as soon as I opened the, the textbooks, one of the first things I said is there's a real shortage of uh, cooperative tabletop activities that are intrinsically motivating to keep people engaged without competition. And I was like, well, role playing gaming does that. What right. are you talking about? It's People stay totally engaged. They'll play that for freaking years, right? <laughs> there's no problem keeping them engaged and motivated. What are you talking about? And I'd search through the literature far and wide could not find a single piece of literature in recreation therapy that ever even considered any form of role-playing gaming. And then meanwhile, I uh, will now jump back in time. Um, I first got into role-playing gaming in 1977. Uh, A cousin introduced me to it and I played here and there. By 1979, I was uh, learning to code and software. I was about nine years old. um, And I had friends at the university of Utah on the early version of what would become the internet. It was ARPA and DARPAnet. And they let me have access to an old PDP mainframe to do some programming there, and then they let me get on the early pre-internet and such. And and some of, one of my first programs that I wrote was a text-based, uh, uh, selection-based, um, it was mostly just if-thens, uh, role-playing game with some dice rolling and combat rules, et cetera. And it, you know, it's different than Zork, which is a natural language uh interactive fiction which didn't really have the same thing with all the dice rolls and and and, you know isn't a full role-playing game it's more interactive fiction with natural language this was a menu-driven text-based game and so i I, I, that was my first electronic role-playing game that i made all right so when i was about 11 12 years old about 1982 or so i had my first paid programming gig software development gig uh, creating point of sale inventory software for a video rental store by 83 I started being paid as a game master to run the games. I had two groups on Saturdays, one on Sundays. I was only about 12 or 13 years old, and my youngest gamer was 17. All the others were college age, up into their 50s and 60s. And they all paid me to run their games. So I'd gotten a reputation, and people were willing to pay for it. And back then, uh, like the first edition of Advanced Dungeons & Dragons rulebook, the player's handbook, was like $12. Miniatures were like 25 cents. They were lead. And so I would just, they knew I would just spend that money to get more gaming stuff to make the game even more fun. And that's how I built up a huge collection over the 80s. Uh, by 83, I started researching about gaming because uh, I was at a, a school called Rounds of Winkery in Utah for Gifted and Talent Children. And there was the big backlash growing, right? 82 is when the backlash against gaming really started to ramp up and we were starting to get harassed etc so we were asked to do a paper on current events and i did an eight-page essay on uh, role-playing gaming and how people were reacting to it what it was really about um and what little research was available um there was only one book out at the time by gary allen fine on on role-playing gaming and then there was just a smattering of the beginnings of potential research but no real research in 1983 uh fast forward to 85 i was running role-playing games in the classroom five days a week for gifted and talented children you have the choice to go to study hall or come to hawk's role-playing game class you'd come in i'd do a five to ten minute lecture and then the rest of the class would be applying whatever the topic of the day was related to role-playing gaming we had the biology lab for that so we could have tables and chairs instead of school desks and uh you could choose from different games you could choose uh, AD&D 1st Edition, Middle-earth roleplaying by Iron Crown Enterprises, Twilight 2000, um, Call of Cthulhu, Star Wars, Doctor Who, a few others. You had a few choices there. and uh, First people just kind of come in, listen, and watch, and then slowly the study hall emptied and everybody was in that class. Not everybody became lifelong gamers, but it completely nullified all of the stigma that had been developed by then. Uh, I continued. Uh, I've continued to run games in the educational settings, both in and around schools, ever since. Um, and then, uh, fast forward to 2004. After I uh, did the whole Silicon Valley thing and retired and all that, I focused on raising my kids. Was looking ahead at where to go next, and so when I now now we're looping it back to when I found that there was very little research. There were only about 40 to 60 studies by then in 2004 on the effects or correlative data, mostly, of role-playing games. And they were mostly by psychiatrists and psychologists and a few others. And most of them were correlative or causal or very few meta analysis There were very few controlled studies, and, and those, some of them, were very poorly done. Um, and they were all generally done to try to prove or disprove all of the negative stereotypes from the 80s and 90s that were inculcated, you know, just embedded in our culture. And what they started finding instead was so they said, well, role playing games will make you kill people. So they started to look at the, you know, homicide rate and criminality in such gamers and found that not only did there not seem to be an increase, there actually seemed to be an inverse correlation. Gamers appeared to be less violent than their non gaming peers, they tended to have lower psychopathy than their non gaming peers they had lower levels of meaninglessness than their non-gaming peers. 43% of college students scored high on meaninglessness that were non-gamers. Only 17% of gamers scored high on meaninglessness in the early, early 90s research. Um, so they said, well, it'll make you more likely commit, commit suicide, right? This is all because of uh, uh, Patricia Pulling and bothered about Dungeons & Dragons, BADD. Her son, uh, uh, Bink Pulling, had killed himself. And... She was on a crusade and formed this organization and was all over 60 minutes in the Canadian Broadcasting Company. She was lobbying Congress to get danger symbols and banning of gaming. She got gaming banned at, most school, at many schools, which then other schools just followed suit anyway. Uh, to this day, most prisons still ban gaming, although we're slowly getting that turned around. Most schools are starting to turn around as well, but it's left a lasting impact. She passed away in the 90s, and then her organization collapsed. She'd also partnered up with NCTC, the National Council Against Television Violence, with Dr. Thomas Radecki, and that was part of how they got so much attention in the 80s. Uh, But he has had his license revoked for multiple times, uh, in the 90s and the 2000s, for trading prescriptions for drugs for sex. And so he's had his license revoked, he got it back, he had it revoked, he got it back, and then finally in 2016, uh, they imprisoned him, and he's doing a, a long sentence in prison finally. These were the people, these two people were the biggest proponents of the dangers of role-playing games. Um, And so there have been multiple studies done about the suicide rate of gamers, and it turns out that either there's no significant difference between gamers and non-gamers and the suicide rate, or, according to other meta-analysis studies, uh, including... So some of these studies went ahead and said, all right, fine, Patricia Pulling, Dr. Radecki... Let's just assume that all these suicides you claim are caused by D&D. Let's go ahead and count them, right? We we don't see any evidence that support your claim, but let's just go ahead and take your data and include that. Using your data, it turns out the suicide rate of gamers is somewhere between one-fifth to one-twentieth that of non-gamers. Wow.
0: <laughs> now, when we're, when we're saying gamers, we're talking about
1: tabletop players, or are you talking about gaming? tabletop role-playing gamers okay this was all the big anti-d&d tabletop role-playing game movement of the 80s and 90s that the legacy continues this day i cannot travel the country with my rpg license plate on my suv the rpg bus with all the artwork the rpg the two rpg trailers without running into people who believe that role-playing games tabletop role-playing games like dungeons and dragons will make you commit suicide will make you more likely to, to do mass murders will make you antisocial, that only losers, freaks, and geeks play it, only boys play it. You see that on Big Bang Theory, et cetera, perpetuating that myth. Um, the data does not support that. Now, there is such thing as a self-fulfilling prophecy. What happened is in the later 80s, as this got fully propagated through the media, people then started to avoid the activity. So if you look in the early 80s, you saw these school clubs of D&D clubs, and they were huge. They started out to the big 20, 30 kids. They'd be like 100 kids. And then the anti-gaming movement started and you watched them within two to three years vanish. They just shrink, shrink, and gone because they then banned the gaming at many of the schools. And this legacy has affected multiple generations because you had the adults who were listening to the media and banning their kids from it, and you had the kids who went through it at the time who literally, like I have multiple people on our staff now, who they had sworn to their parent on their deathbed that they would not play D&D ever again. They, that was their dying wish, that they don't play D&D. That's how much this craze was going on at the time. And so the workaround had been in that. Is like, well, there's lots of other role-playing games, <laughs> it's, it's, as I've introduced them to the facts since then. Um, so so this there's a long story to it. We have whole courses just on that negativity. But that's what most of the research was about in 2004, was trying to prove or disprove. And generally all the research studies found that either there was no difference or an inverse correlation of the claim. So if they claimed it was a higher rate of violence it actually turned out to be a lower rate for for role-playing gamers than non-role-playing gamers. If it turned out to be a higher suicide rate was the claim, it turned out to be the inverse. If it turned out to be more antisocial, it turned out to be the inverse. It's a social cooperative game. Anybody who plays it knows it. Um, But people just don't understand it because it is hard to explain. There isn't a quick, clean, accurate definition of a role-playing game. We've tried over and over and over on our website, we've tried it in all kinds of panels, I've tried all kinds of forums to discuss it, and I cannot get it less than a very long paragraph, right, multiple sentence paragraph. Otherwise, it just keeps leaving something out that doesn't make it distinctive from something else. So, because it's kind of a complex concept, people really have trouble understanding. The other big problem, I blame RPG publishers about propagation and understanding of gaming Uh, when we have whole courses about how ninety nine point whatever percent of publishers are doing it wrong in how they release role playing games as far as if you want to increase dissemination and adoption of this wonderful hobby that we know research shows now there's a lot of it helps improve lives across the board. And that is the the starter sets are not starter sets. There's these weird gamerisms that they don't understand about how people actually learn, and they mostly rely on the mentor model. Now, don't get me wrong. The mentor model is a proven, powerful way of learning, but it doesn't scale. And there's other weird things that can happen uh, if you don't challenge your authority as your mentor and things like that. That's another lecture, (laughs) another topic of discussion.
0: So so the mentor model... uh,
2: just talk about that real quick so it makes sense to
1: anyone. Yeah, so basically the way gaming has relied on propagation is that somebody who's a gamer introduces gaming to a non-gamer. You can't okay. easily... You can go buy a, a, the starter set D&D box online and break it open, but it, unless you're willing to wade through an awful lot of reading and preparation, you can't just jump in and start playing in five minutes. You certainly, generally can't play by yourself. Now, there's been a very recent exception to that on the player side. Um, but the only role-playing game I've ever seen, and there may be, and I keep waiting for somebody to prove me wrong, because we're looking actively, is the 1983 Frank Metzer Red Box Basic D&D set, which started the whole Me Basic Expert, Companion, Masters, Immortals. And that version understands what we now know neuroscience shows is the best way to learn, which is through incremental differential learning rather than mass learning. So what I mean is, you start out, you open the book, and within minutes, you are playing a solo adventure. And it's introduced, rather than telling you all the rules up front, it doesn't even tell you all the stats up front. It says, oh, at this point, we decide your, your fighter is, has a 17 strength. This means how strong he is. Let's apply that to the story context. We learn through powerful narrative, it helps us with memory cues and retrieval, and it makes it stick better. So you learn as you play the game, and then you play it by yourself. You don't need other friends. So you literally could buy this box, get it for Christmas, give it as a gift, whatever, and start playing within minutes. Then you play another adventure. It has more details. It starts giving you some tips and tricks. You start mapping, and it's a complete solo adventure at that point. Then there's a third adventure in the little DM's guide that says, okay, now that you've played twice, give those solo adventures, give this, that player's manual to a friend you would like to play with one or more friends, Let them play through the solo, and when they're ready, come sit down. You you can read through this first adventure you're going to GM if you want, but you don't have to. Just open up the book, a couple minutes of prep, sit down with your friends, you've got your characters, and just follow through step-by-step how to run your first game. And it holds your hand through the whole GMing process of an entire dungeon. Nobody else has done that anywhere near that effectively. They keep assuming a a very different mindset of how the vast majority of human beings learn. And the closest we've seen recently was the seventh edition Call of Cthulhu starter set. They do the correct thing for players. They've got a couple of solo adventure modules that as a player, you learn the rules. And then they've got actually a solo campaign. So on the player side, they got it. But then on the GM side, they then say, okay, now read this entire rule book. You know, it's a light version, but still, Read this entire rulebook all the way through and read this adventure through and then you'll learn some more of the rules as you do the adventure um so they didn't quite get it on the gm side well the mentor model where it relies on one person to introduce to another to another to another doesn't scale versus if you have a bunch of starter sets like the frank Metzer starter set millions of people can buy the box and start playing and start their own groups very quickly you see how what a difference that makes in scalability
2: I'm gonna have to get the uh, a link to that from you, or a um, the exact name of it, because you know I'll sleep again before I, I actually get the chance to look it up. And <laughs> I, I have the memory of a uh, very small gnat, uh, but I really want to look that up and see what format they used for it. If
1: I can get a copy, go of to it go through go to drivethroughrpg.com. Uh-huh and just type in beckme basic dnd menser m e n t z r that's frank menser and you can download the pdf for free there's no print edition i'm not free for 5 bucks right right <clears throat> excuse me so the players manual is 5 bucks and the gm's guide is 5 bucks and you can play through the it's it, it's just a scan of the original and you can play through and you'll see exactly what i'm talking about
2: yeah cuz i want to i want to see about maybe presenting that
1: to other RPG companies as a model. I've been trying thing. to tell everybody to do this, and we're we're doing it on our own with BFRPG, Basic Fantasy, uh-huh. at basicfantasy.org. So we are creating two solo adventures as an introductory and an initial GM's adventure. We're working on that, trying to get that. We release that for free when it when it comes out. Yeah. So And then hopefully everybody will emulate that model because it scales.
2: But, I mean, as a, as a teacher, I can tell you, that's one of our main... Yeah, chunking information. Mm -hmm. uh, Whenever we teach um, research papers, we teach it over months. We start off with teaching how to cite sources, how to find appropriate sources, and then whenever we actually get to writing the paper, we tell them, "Okay, find your three ways you're going to try to prove your your point." Right, and then we say, "Write the first paragraph talking exclusively about this one point." Mm-hmm. Now, write the, the, the second body paragraph. Now, write the third body paragraph.
1: Yep. Now, go back and write your introduction
2: because you yep. have to know what you're introducing yep. before you can write the introduction. And this is, right. yeah, this is and based on. Once you have on... it all done, write your conclusion. And they can write a full research paper in little chunks where they get
1: pieces of information as they go. Yes. This is based on the neuroscience principle of chunking, which states there's two different theories. One states that the average human being can only handle 7 plus or minus 2 chunks so between 5 to 9 chunks of data others say it's 4 plus or minus 3 um, depending upon ability or 5 plus or minus 2 you know so there's different theories on the amount but it's in that 5 to 9 range of data now let me what i mean by chunking so if i throw at you a whole bunch of numbers like 172963524973 you're probably not unless you've you know got some special ability with numbers going to be able to recite that easily they don't have any cues or links for you without you creating some narrative or something to link it you're going to have trouble reciting those numbers especially as the numbers get longer and and the problem is it it these use up a lot of chunks also language makes a difference but that's another topic so but if i say to you CIA, FBI, NSA, DIA, uh you know HHS these have already have cues in your memory and so actually each of those three letters is only one chunk because you've got previous knowledge to draw from and build on. So you're more likely to be able to remember that list, even though if I had just thrown random letters at you, it would have been much harder. If I threw random letters at you, nine letters would use up nine chunks effectively, versus I was able to th- throw at you three times as much because I was using three-letter acronyms, that odds are you have prior experience and knowledge, so those are already queued, so each each of those three only uses up one chunk. And so that's a very fundamental concept about learning, and this is, you know, neuroscience focuses generally, unless you get into abnormal neuroscience, uh, neuroscience focuses on how most people on the bell curve work. So you've got the big bell curve, and then you have the outliers, the, you know, the top 10%, the bottom 10%, or top 25, bottom 25, whatever your chop off is, and you just ignore the outliers. And you focus on how the vast majority of people learn, who don't have disabilities, And one of the things neuroscience has, has totally shot down for people without neurodifferences, right? we're talking here just the average person, the, the general, uh, without disabilities and, and neurodifferences of significance, uh, is that this whole concept that was taught in teaching is still taught heavily about different learning styles. doesn't hold up under research at all. It does hold up for people with neurodifferences and disabilities. But for everybody else, we all learn the same way. So, you know, experiential, multi-modal, uh, things like that, that is the best way for everybody to learn. Differential, not mass learning. Uh, it really makes a difference for everybody. And then if you have somebody who has a learning disability or their neurodifference, then you start looking at specializing a certain learning technique that might be more accessible for their particular needs. Um, and this, and people need, and role-playing game developers need to understand this, and that would increase adoption exponentially if they would just figure it out.
0: I wonder if there's some gatekeeping going on there, where people yes. have written role-playing game guides in order to keep out a majority of people, to only keep in the people that we see as our end group, as mm-hmm. opposed to you know, letting it be an open door for everybody who wants
1: to learn role-playing. There have been some people who have done that consciously, but I think for the vast majority, I mean, because even like Vampire and all the others who really try to be inclusive and really bend over backwards and and get in trouble for it sometimes (laughs) to be um, all-inclusive, I don't think it's a conscious thing. It's that they're in a gamer bubble. And this is one of the things, even though I've been involved with gaming since 77, I'm not, I don't really feel... A strong connection to the gamer community itself I do I do have kind of more of an external observer because I, I'm not I don't I don't self-identify as just a gamer I have all these other areas of the, of the fields I've worked in and cultural connections etc and and whereas I am around a lot of gamers who are in that bubble they clearly have and as any social group is in group has that that viewpoint um, I'm definitely more on the, bo- the boundary of that. Like I'm kind of right between the, 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 the gamer bubble and outside of it, I can look at it and see these isms that a lot of gamers don't seem to even think about. And it's really helped me when we go to um, facilities at schools and rehab centers and hospitals, etc. The first thing we have to do is address all of the inculcated myths before we can move forward. And I've gotten a lot of grief about this from the gamer community. Like, why do you keep bringing up all this negative stuff. Why do you keep bringing up the past? And I said, well, for the vast majority of the world, it's not the past. The vast, And this includes professionals everywhere. I'll speak at professional conferences. And what I, through trial and error we learned is if we just jump straight into here's the benefits of gaming and here's how you can make it better in your classroom or your your medical facility or your practice, um, then we get to the Q&A section or, or to keep interrupting us. They're like a dog with a biscuit on the nose. Where they're just waiting for you to give the command for their zinger so that they can go, Yeah, but what about this? I heard this, right? They're like, yeah. Yes, it doesn't make you, isn't it antisocial? Girls don't play this game, right? They, and they don't, their cup isn't empty. So we always have to empty their cup when we first start any presentation if it's outside of the gamer bubble. And most of our work is actually outside the gamer bubble. We don't go to that many gaming conferences, we go when we're invited but because we're generally talking more research and hard numbers rather than just, we we have lots of anecdotal stories, but we want to back things up with real numbers. And that is less exciting for most of the gaming community. So most of the people who are doing the circuit in the gaming community tend to be, have some very entertaining anecdotal stories, um, but don't really have any real numbers. And when we start citing numbers, much of the fandom community gets a little bored. but we, we it's focus a different on different audience right it is it's a different audience. audience yeah um, you know yeah. but we're we're trying to keep our energy focused on trying to grow this body of research because i said in t- 2004 there were maybe 40 60 studies and that was it now in our repository of research we have on our old www2 server over 3800 uh, research con related content items this is essays and papers and videos and blogs but they're all related to the, the research topics then on the newer W3 server, we have not another 1,000. On my laptop, I have about another thousand, fifteen hundred of, uh, of these. And what these are is people email me all the time now studies they have done at their university, um, either at their bachelor's or master's or doctoral level or postdoctoral level, but that the either they or the university wasn't interested in submitting to a journal for a couple of reasons. One is if you submit to a journal, most closed journals, you lose your copyright control of the product, right? You can you can cite it, you can use your presentations, but you lose control. The journal owns your product and it gets put behind a paywall. Uh, others it's just because it's too much hassle to go through or they don't want to go or a lot of places they just get rejected. Also we have researchers that many of them come on board because their university when they wanted to research on this topic it said, you know, that's not really appropriate to the values of our organization. Please find a different modality. And, and I hear that all the time. But meanwhile, we get emails with people going, hey, here's the paper I did, or here's the dissertation I did, or here's this whole research study I did that I don't know where to publish it. Would you would you share this, please? And so I've got hundreds of those on my laptop that I'm trying to get out there. So altogether, we've got about five or 6,000 content items, not counting all our hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of YouTube videos, etc., uh, between our different servers that we're now trying to move to our newest server and get it all cleaned up.
0: Can you make that available to everybody pretty much on your website, at least within we do. within copyright
2: possibilities.
1: Exactly. Yeah, as much as we legally can, we make it freely available. It, it's a little bit messy. Have, unfortunately, we're trying to clean it up. It is scattered across three servers. We're trying to get it all integrated into one new server that we're on now. Um, it's taken me years to <laughs> accumulate all this. It's going to take me a while to get it all on there and organized. But we we do have a volunteer role now of the research archivist. And I just had about 60 applicants uh, on LinkedIn apply last week. So now i got to go through all those resumes and interviews. And what they will do is just start moving all that data onto the new server and clean it up and organize it and get copyright permission and all that. And then we make it all freely available as much as we legally can. And we have one workaround for those who say, no, I only want you to just have a citation info, is we have our researchers as part of their training write blog postings and essays doing a literature review of a specific paper, and then they write about it. So yes, it is an interpretation, but it is a way for you to get access to the data because somebody else is writing about and citing it, and it kind of works around that paywall barrier. And then if you want to get to the original source of it, then you're gonna to have to go through the, you know your university subscription, if they have it, or the paywall of the journal of 35 bucks for one essay. Um, so we, we do everything we can to try to set the data free legally.
2: So you have
0: identified that you've uh, created a data bank, basically, of of amazing research that's been done on RPGs. Uh, You do trainings for people to both learn to be a therapeutic RPG master and to uh, be better uh, game masters, basically. Yes. Um, When it comes to therapy, you've you've talked about working with autistic children, you've talked with... uh, much younger children. Mm-hmm. Have you have you done this in a therapeutic role, in, like in the sense of like counseling, therapy? That oh kind
1: yes. Of thing? So I have actually two businesses I founded related to this. I actually have four businesses, but related to this topic. So RPG Research, five hundred one C three nonprofit. It basically became a reality in two thousand four as the RPG Research Project website. Um, you know I've been doing the research on and off since nineteen eighty three, but that's where it all became a public thing. Um, and I've been doing experiments as far back as 1979 with gaming on how to optimize the experience, etc. Um, I have done an educational setting since '85 and in therapeutic setting since 2004. Uh, so I have a I started as my private practice as RPG Therapeutics LLC um, as a recreation and music therapist with uh, this background. And as I said, I'm Washington State uh, Department of Health registered recreational therapist. And uh, so I, I, I had a whole client base uh, for years there, and I was overwhelmed. I was working like 90 hours a week doing role-playing game therapy uh, at, at back in 2009 through 12. Through By 2014, I was just overwhelmed. So I tried to hire people, but just because, and I got all kinds of wonderful applicants, but they just because they were a gamer and a therapist or a gamer and a PhD, whatever, they didn't know how to merge the two domains. And so I realized I needed to, and I was already doing workshops training staff, different, excuse me, facilities, but I had to keep going from facility to facility to facility to facility. I needed to come up with a way that would scale, right? We're back to scalability here, so that far more people could learn much more quickly. So I wrapped up the client base I had, I stopped taking on a lot of new clients except for the most critical ones, and I really focused on ramping up RPG Research's training side. And um, now I still take, I've still been taking in clients as a therapist, um, and these range from, You know, little children to teenagers to adults, you know, young adults, uh, middle-aged, seniors, all the age groups, all kinds of different levels of function, you know, some with no diagnoses whatsoever. They just, uh, couples counseling. I've done couples counseling through gaming. I've done family counseling through gaming. Um, And, you know, but we worked with the traumatic brain injury and spinal cord injury department and doing uh, different forms of role-playing games to help with their recovery process. I work in partnership with physical therapists and occupational therapists and other doctors and, and all kinds of mental health workers. We work with uh, drug rehab centers with uh, inpatient uh, to outpatient transition programs helping uh, at risk. We've worked with incarcerated populations, both youth and adults. And so on my private practice side, I've done a ton of that, most of which I can't share publicly other than as amalgamated data. Though I take, I mean, am- amalgamated anecdotes though I have data because what I do differently than most of the other therapists out there, is I do baselines. We have a pretty rigorous intake process, and I screen out a lot. A lot of people come to me and said, oh, I'd really like to try this, and I and we do our initial consultation and go, you know, this might not be the best fit for your goals. I'm going to recommend you to this person to do something completely different. Uh, somebody comes in with a severe personality disorder, uh, role-playing gaming might not be appropriate for that particular disorder, I'll refer them to somebody another specialist. Uh, But what I do usually accept are the ones who they've kind of gone to everybody else. They've been to the psychiatrist. They've been on the medications. They've been to the psychologist. They've been to the talk therapist. They've been to the CBT therapist. They've been through ABA. They've been through all these other uh, accepted mainstream therapy approaches. And they've either plateaued or been getting worse and worse and worse. And usually by the time they have come to me, they're they're near the end, they're highly suicidal often, Um, they're really really struggling, Uh, many of them have other health issues, you know, they're part of this, the mental health struggle and everything, or maybe causing some of the mental health struggle, and so it's kind of a last chance, and that's very scary, because as I said, a lot of these have come in with suicidal ideations, many of them have made suicide attempts prior to contacting me, often it's a parent or loved one, a wife or whatever, is like, I'm afraid I'm going to lose them, I think they might really enjoy what you're doing. I think they, they've got a personality that this might click for, can you help? And so those I still accept on a very limited basis um, because the problem is if I, if, I, if I open everything back up again, I won't have time to train everybody else so that then it can scale out to far more people. As a human being, I have only 166 hours a week I can do. But if I can train more people to help others, a lot more people will be helped. So, so I keep it to just these worst case cases. And the good news is, using this role-playing game modality, um, I often use a variety of different role-playing games because I know that different games are di- are better for targeting very specific needs. So for example, the One Ring role-playing game is excellent for social skills, empathy building, uh, comradeship, uh, uh, emulating reactive emotions to the pain of others. It's really good at it. D&D 5th edition, not so much. Uh, The uh, Doctor Who Adventures in Time and Space is really good at finding non-violent solutions to problems because it's built into the rule system. It really helps to encourage people to try talking and finding other solutions, creative solutions rather than violent solutions. Uh, Twy2000 is really rigorous on long-term planning and resource management and uh, uh, frustration tolerance and basically trying to build grit in a very gritty type game. Um, And so I have a whole list of these different games that are appropriate for targeting specific needs much more quickly. So, if you play a D&D 5th Edition group in a therapeutic setting, you will get benefits. And with the right therapists and such, they can be pretty great benefits. But it will take longer and more sessions, depending upon your goals, to do it with D&D 5th Edition than it might, for example, with the One Ring role-playing game, depending upon what the goals are. So that's why we do very rigorous assessments, and usually these people already have a ton of assessments done by others. So we amalgamate all we get all that data from their previous caretakers, and then we go ah let's put a program plan together over the next three to nine months, and that's t- typically that's about the longest my programs have needed to be. Again, they come in on a scale of one to ten, one being you know the lowest mood possible. They're hope they're at hopeless and rather than hopeful. Uh, suicidal ideations within a, within a few weeks of sessions, they're usually up around a two or a three, and usually within a, a month or two they're up around a five. And five is good. Five is, yeah, I'm doing okay. You know, I'm not the happiest I've ever been, but this is, this is about good middle of the road. Um, but the most important thing is they're no longer having suicidal ideations. They're hopeful about their future. They now have social groups that they're interacting with regularly. Uh, they're back to being productive in their lives. Uh, uh, another population is uh, panic disorder and agoraphobia. So people who are afraid to go outside because they're afraid they'll have a panic attack for whatever reason. I've taken people who had completely become complete recluses. They did not leave house. Now, right now, with what's going on, <laughs> the <laughs> they're, whole they're the whole world's become that, right? But right. Uh, but these this was abnormal for the time period. This is this is a good 10, 12 years ago, and they they had everything was delivered. They never left their room apartment. And someone got to the point where they didn't leave their bedroom except to go to the bathroom. They're just so filled with terror. And so I would show up, uh, you know, because of a loved one and, and build, you know, first build a rapport with them and then get them doing a solo, uh, either adventure book or a solo computer game or something like that, that I felt was uh, uh, helpful and just kind of teaching them the concept of role playing. Usually they did not do role playing gaming before, some have, but most of them had not. So I introduce them, because they've got some geeky interest or whatever, I find out if they like fantasy sci-fi or murder mysteries or whatever, and we pick the right genre game for their interest. It's about intrinsic motivation. And, and the pre-mac Principle, which is you'll go through difficult stuff to get the reward at the end. And we'll start out with that, and it's basically an exposure therapy technique. We'll start with a little solo adventure, then we'll do on an online server that I control, like Neverwinter Nights or something, over a VPN so it's all private. Uh, we'll play Neverwhere Nights on a custom-built module that I've built the scripting and the and the dialogue. Then I might have some employees be some of the other players that they play alongside with online. And it's a safe, nurturing environment. And it helps them slowly get more comfortable talking to people again. Then we'll try to get them down to one of my offices with a controlled gaming group there. Again, it might be employees in the gaming group, or it might be other gamers who are, are either therapeutic or some other setting. And have them just watch for a while maybe at first over a webcam with everybody's permission uh, maybe later hang out in the room and then maybe later join in and then and so that the all each of these steps takes a few weeks for each step and then eventually we'll go and we'll watch a game at a game store with a gm that i trust where i know the environment's a safe welcoming environment Those watch the game and then maybe after a session or two they overcome their anxiety and join the game and they'll have setbacks right there's good days and bad days but eventually they get to the point where they're taking the bus or whatever Um, and going to the games on a weekly basis and Every one of them got their lives back some more than others most of them fully generalized and overcame their their disorder Uh, one did not fully generalize Uh, this one only uh, Only goes to two games a week runs one and plays in one at two different game stores uses the bus and goes to the grocery store and then still stays home and then plays online and such but that person previously didn't even dare go online, wouldn't go to the grocery store, didn't use the bus, didn't had no social life. So, though they did not fully recover and generalize, their life opened up exponentially from what it was. All of the others, they, they got their lives back fully, and some of them are running multiple game sessions, and others, they just play, but it, it, it helped them overcome that. So, I apply, because I'm multidisciplinary, I apply a lot of well-proven techniques, because I'm a researcher, I really look at what works and what doesn't. Uh, RPG Research has a gold standard of we really, while we will look at all data, we try to focus on using the data that has a 0.8 or better coefficient, kind of a gold standard, and internally we want a 0.9 or better for our own um, assessments and tools, which means really good correlation and proof of change. Right, if you've got, so like, let's interrate, interrate a reliability. If I give you a test, uh, you know, if I, if I give a bunch of people a test and then I have you give that test and then I have Brian give that test um, The inter reliability is do we get basically the same results with three different people administering the test, right? Or do we get radically different results? Uh, for example, we did an assessment on people evaluating what is needed to participate in a drum circle and some people thought it required a lot of coordination and other people said it doesn't require much coordination well, that's a problem because that means the inter-rater reliability is is random. There isn't reliability. If if every person who administers it has a completely different viewpoint, we have a problem. Um, so th- that's partly a training thing. It's also how the questions are phrased and how the assessment tool works. Uh, a lot of assessment tools out there that are used professionally either have no they have no rating as to their validity and reliability. They actually test what you want to test. And are they consistent or not between populations or between testers? Many of them do not have that. Now, luckily in rec therapy, we have entire books that go through and assess all these tools and say, oh, this one's got a point eight or better, or point nine, this one only has a point four, or hey, this one's never been tested. And we, we heavily use those tools, and so we get really good numbers, even our community programs. But yeah, so we work with a wide range of populations, the list is lengthy. Yeah,
0: I almost feel like you don't know if you could do this, but a diagnosis book where it's like this diagnosis matches this kind
1: of RPG. We are, we are. It's called the okay. the Therapeutic <laughs> Recreation Role Playing Game Handbook of Practice. So, what do you think is at the center?
0: I feel like I have my own answers, and so that it gets me a little bit of trouble to ask the question because I probably directed. But what do you think is the key thing that's going on in an RPG? makes it so meaningful you you've talked about it being used as a last resort and yet still reaching the kind of potential that you wanted it to yeah to save people from suicidal ideation depression listlessness whatever it might be what is the what is the center point there what are we revolving around here
1: well and i've been fortunate so far and i know sooner or later i I, i'm going to run out of luck so far i haven't lost a single client And I keep my fingers crossed that that day never happens, but I have to brace myself that someday it will happen because there's, uh, for example, right now, this situation globally is creating a huge mental health crisis that nobody's reporting. And I've had to do a ton of welfare checks, and I'm doing a lot of pro bono work to try to turn people around who aren't even my clients. I'm just getting referrals. And just because I'm in the region, I'm helping out just because I'm physically in the region. Um, But... Uh, what the, the So the problem is you're asking what makes role-playing games so effective, and it's going to depend on the population and the goal and what you're targeting. Uh, but there are a few kind of universals. One is it's cooperative rather than competitive, and that's big. Number two is, especially for tabletop, and again, we do all formats, but tabletop is the most powerful of the modalities, though they all have their power and usefulness, and we use all of them. But tabletop is mostly verbal, and I work with the deaf community as well, so when I say verbal, I'm including sign language and such. But you have to create a dialogue with others. So it's not just that you're cooperating together, but you have to engage all of those social aspects to work together. And our large, our, our large prefrontal cortexes were mostly designed, about 20 to 30% of our brain mass is, for that, is designed for just dealing with social interaction. And role-playing gaming stresses. And the way our brains improve is by doing, right? The more we do it, the more repetition, the more it streamlines, it becomes more effective at the task. And when we have to verbalize what we want, uh, listen to what others want, process that take turns right because there's turn taking and all of that um, and work together communicate effectively problem solve effectively um, that's a lot of cognitive work and for those who are on the spectrum or recovering from a brain injury that's a turn off in other activities to say well we need you to sit here and practice this group well that's not that's boring I don't want to do that uh, this, is a, this is a key tenet of recreation therapy. Um, physical therapy can be very painful to do, and what happens is after people are then discharged and told, okay, keep doing the exercises each week, they, most people quit within 6 to 18 months. Recreation therapy, what we do is we figure out what intrinsically motivates them. Intrinsically means they're willing to do it because they enjoy it, not because of a paycheck or because their mother said so or because they'll know they'll be healthier, but because they actually just enjoy doing it Um, We find out what intrinsically motivates them. We often have to educate them about what that is because many do not know. Many start out, their only hobbies are watching YouTube videos, doing drugs and drinking, you know, maybe partying on the weekends with friends at a club or something. Um, They tend to be a limited recreation and leisure uh, uh, knowledge. So we have to educate them and we we present all these new opportunities based on interviews and figure things out. And sometimes role-playing gaming is a good fit. And that uh, here's an example of the power of the tabletop mode. Um, I worked in physical security for a lot of years. Uh, I was involved in uh, shootouts and and shootings and such, where where there were a lot of witnesses of of extremely stressful situations. And you have 10 witnesses, you will get 10 different responses about what happened. Now, part of that's because the amygdala gets so activated, you get the flashbulb memory with a huge emotional context. And at the same time, the hippocampus, which controls narrative, gets anesthetized and shuts down and has trouble piecing the story together while it's happening. So then it kind of takes the flashbulb memory and tries to piece together in some way to make sense. And you end up with a highly distorted view of what actually happened. And unless you've got a lot of cameras around at good angles and such, it's really hard to know what happened, right, from 10 witnesses in a highly stressful situation. Role-playing gaming puts us under stress so it wakes up our brains, you know, a tabletop role-playing game. It wakes up our brains, so generally, if you're doing a good job. So we're paying attention. Our faculties are taking in data. There's a level of stress and danger that's activating the amygdala so that you've got emotional context going on because if you, if you don't have an amygdala, you lose emotional context of memory. You don't lose the memory, you just lose the emotional context. If you damage the hippocampus, you lose memory, right? You just have emotions and flash bulbs, but you don't have a context. So, role playing gaming engages both the amygdala, the hippocampus, and huge, many other parts of the brain. Boy, I would love to have the budget to stick people under a bunch of PET and fMRIs for this. <laughs> I do, I have been hooking You're people. Can you have role playing
2: with, with CAT scans?
1: Well, the easier one is I've been doing it with EEGs and, and BCI, brain computer interfaces, for, for about 15 years, uh, using neural and biofeedback type equipment and then you know monitoring with that. Uh, so, I can get at least some data. Less invasively than trying to stick somebody in a functional MRI scanner, <laughs> but I would love to have the budget to do it someday. Uh, but anyway, it lights up all the different parts of the brain because of all the creativity, all the your, uh, you know, Wernicke's side of receive of of uh, receiving data, Broca's area for speech, or I think I might be reversing that. But anyway, the different parts of speech and understanding, etc., and so many parts of the brain get used. So you know, it's in muscular dystrophy, it's use it or lose it. It's the same thing with our brains. And these stories are narrative. And so they create a narrative, cohesive whole, which gives us mnemonic cues. It helps our brain track things and store them. And so what I've observed, and I would love to do some formal studies, but I've observed this over and over and over again, is I'll have groups go through an especially intense campaign or session. They'll experience flow state. Flow state is a key tenant of rec therapy and a key part of role-playing game efficacy. Flow state's like where you play and like two hours go by and it feels like half an hour. You have a loss of time. Uh, people in sports describe it as being in the zone. I've got a 10-minute 10 10 minute video on YouTube. If you just look up role-playing games and flow state, you can watch that video about it. But uh, so it's an it's incredible state of immersion to the point of loss of being self-conscious of every little thing. You're focused. You're at your maximum peak of capacity. You're being challenged. And it's your best state for learning. Uh, new skills and uh, all sorts of other uh, awareness and it's narrative so people will go through this really intense we beat the, this boss and it was really intense and wow what a that was an incredible game we'll talk to him 10 years later and I've been recording for over 15 years much of our sessions I have thousands and thousands of hours of game sessions it's completely overwhelming <laughs> but we can go back we can talk to him 10 years later and say, hey, remember this session where you fought this boss? Tell me what you remember. We can have each individual or as a group um, recount the story with a high level of both accuracy and detail that you would never see in real life in a similar if it was really happening, right? If you were really that scared fighting a big troll, the the mingle would be so activated that you'd have, you know some people would have PTSD, others wouldn't, um, but you'd be so activated from the stress hormones that you would not get that level of consistency. But the game, role-playing game environment is a safe environment where there is emulated danger that generally you know is not real, but enough to really get you focused. And that narrative is incredibly powerful in that social context. Well, you, you've given us a lot to chew on. <laughs> I um, warned you.
0: <laughs> which, is, which is what you do. I mean, I, I've spent some time talking to you now, and... and uh, I've learned that you are a fount of knowledge. We couldn't possibly get it all out in one podcast, no. which is unfortunate. Um, but we can get in real quick to talk about the, the training that you do. Yes, Because, and I'm not sure if that's just open to anyone who applies, or if that's specific to a particular audience, uh, but if, if there is, you know, someone listening to this that gets really excited about what you've said, they want to be a part of your process and your program, what would they need to do to get
1: involved? So the training, we, we stream our training live over YouTube, sometimes Twitch, but usually YouTube, uh, three to ten times a week. Anybody is welcome to watch the live stream and participate through the stream. We start out with a, a baseline quiz on a topic. Then we do some applied gaming where we're actually running a game, whether it's a GM training or people, or we're evaluating a new game or whatever, but we do actual gaming. For an hour or so. Uh, the training sessions are about four hours, uh, once a week per person, but there's multiples to choose from, different schedules. Uh, then midway through, we do the lecture on whatever the topic of the week is, that'll be between 10 to 45 minutes or so. Uh, then we might do a little bit on a GM tips and tricks of the trade, like you know why a screen is actually of value, or using a GM roster is helpful, or different initiative tracking options or we might do a voicing workshop. We've got different tips and tricks of the trade we throw in there. Then we go back and do some more gaming. It might be a different game, it might be a continuation of the same game for that session. And then we wrap up with the quiz on the topic of the week. And uh, and then if we've got any rec- recreation therapists on the staff, we'll also do a recreation therapy short quiz. So and what this does is it creates interference factors and cues, and we've found this to be really effective and it's bits and pieces. So. Back in two thousand and fourteen, I had about seventy-seven courses that I offered. People paid me to train them in, and I was trying to move them online. And then GoDaddy blew up all of that, so I keep trying to have to do it in person. But we've been moving it more and more to be an automated platform, and a whole and eventually that will be uh, available to the general public. For now, we're having it all for our internal volunteers. So anybody can participate in the streams live, but they won't be assessed or anything like that. They'll just be doing self-assessment if you want to actually get the formal training get some peer review get assessment and work towards the different diplomas we're working we, we have about 20 different levels of game master trainees now you should know that i've got five different pathways basically there's the lay person who just wants to become a better player or a better gm then you have the other kind of more professional tracks of, of the recreational setting which is that you're going to run it in your normal recreational setting at home or at a game store or whatever but generally you're not worried about an audience you're just worried about the best game ever and maybe you want to become a paid professional game master maybe not but you want to be a better more professional game master in a recreational setting then there's the entertainer track which is that you're doing it on a stream or on stage or for some for an audience that's a little bit different gaming style than you do in a recreational setting so we have tips and tricks and training and theories etc to do that more effectively for those on that track then we have the educational track Which is for you want to use it to teach things that aren't really therapy related even though there might be some you know uh uh, secondary therapy benefits from the activity but you're focusing on them learning educational topics whether it's pedagogical applications in school or uh uh, you know more practical life skills but you're it's mostly focused on educational approaches and all the theories and such that, that apply there and the techniques that are useful in a classroom setting and then we finally have the therapeutic setting because that's the most complicated, all the different mental health issues and challenges. And so those are kind of the five major tracks. We've got researcher tracks and software developer tracks, et cetera, but, but that's the five major ones on the RPG side. And um, now that 77 classes, to make them more bite-sized and digestible is well over 200 courses, but it's, but it's taking what was you know a massive eight-hour, 16-hour, 32-hour class and turning it, I'm trying to distill them down to four hours of training, but only about one hour, half hour to an hour of class time, right? And then you've got application. So I have to break these into much smaller, bite sized, digestible chunks. So probably by the time we're done, we'll probably have more than a thousand little classes that you can just take online. And they'll be freely available on RPG Research. Of course, we'll always welcome donations. Uh, those are always, at RPG Research, we're always in flux and trying new things and they may not be the highest quality of, you know, there's typos and what have you, and we're looking for feedback and improving. When they're cleaned up and solidified, uh, and then people want uh, more accelerated training, on the RPG Therapeutics side is that more professional polish. So if you want us to come into your facility and train your staff of two people or 2,000 people, uh, there's a really large uh, mental health facility network in King County, they service sixty to eighty thousand of King County's youth mental health. Um, they have thousands of service providers, and they've been asking us to put together a training program for hundreds and hundreds of their care providers. So we've been trying to work, figure out how to make that all work, and then this happened, and it's kind of on hold right now. But you know, it, it'll it'll pick up. Um, so. Uh, but that's more for the professional path on the, if people want to make a living at this RPG therapeutics hires game masters But you have to be trained up and we we pay is between 20 to 120 an hour depending pay upon your level back to RPG research. We welcome volunteers from all walks of life uh, The most critical thing is that you understand. It's a longitudinal commitment uh, We expect people to stick around for at least a year the learning curve is a minimum of three months if you show up for one training session a week for four hours just to get through your level one diploma. Um, and we're, we're finalizing all those little steps and making it cleaner and neater and more streamlined. Um, but that is about a three month cycle to get your level one diploma. Then about another three months to get your level two. And, and it goes on all, all the way up to level 20, which is kind of grandmaster. And we don't have the, the upper part fully fleshed out. We're still working out those details. But we've got levels one through three pretty clear. and. Uh, four on up is is improving as people are hitting those levels and I keep improving them. So the way to do it is you go to rpgresearch.com forward slash uh, uh, volunteer, and you'll see the different tracks there that you can pick from. And then you can go to slash jobs, so rpgresearch.com forward slash jobs, and see what volunteer positions are open. If you don't see one you're interested in, that's fine. In the application form, you just say, hey, I'm actually looking to help this way. For example, we need a ton of administrative help. We have grown so fast, it is overwhelming, and I am drowning in administrative work. And it slowed down my ability to do research and finish. We've got four books in the queue that I can't finish because I'm juggling administrative stuff every day. So we need administrative assistance. We need, we, we don't, our fundraising is practically nothing. It's all volunteer based. We have very little money. It's all about our wonderful volunteers. Two years ago, we were at about 10 volunteers. We're now at 120 five continents we need a volunteer coordinator desperately (laughs) we need a community outreach and fundraising person desperately we need a grant writer desperately Um, we can still keep doing all of our community programs and some of our research stuff but to go to the next level we now need volunteers to be willing to start doing the administrative stuff not just the fun stuff but meanwhile for the fun side You can sign up as just a player trainee and learn different player levels and become a better player. You can sign up as a GM trainee and go through different levels of training there. We have a unique role called the Player Archetype Specialist, which is you get to train to be the troublesome player to be difficult for the the Game Master trainees because we teach the Game Masters how to de-escalate a troublesome player. This is just like in other fields where you have somebody pretend to be a patient or a disruptive student or whatever and you as the the trainee have to learn the correct techniques for addressing that situation diagnosis and resolution uh, so we have that for laypersons and professionals we have that for educators that's level two paths play art, art specialist and a level three for therapeutic um, you can sign up as a facilitator if you're not really interested in running games but you like putting things events together we need facilitators to help make sure everything's ready the facilities are ready pens and papers are there they often act as Assistance to the GM to make sure the rule books are ready and help the players out a little bit. Um, we have uh, advocates who just do public speaking, right? We train them to, to learn all the history that they need to know and the, and the research and do it first on a small scale with individuals and then on a larger scale and then finally on, on a very large scale to be ready to speak on these topics uh, knowledgeably. Those are RPGAs, our role playing game advocates. Uh, you get the idea, there's a lot of choices. But you just go up to research.com and go to the volunteer section and sign up. And then what you do is we go through a quick interview. Uh, you have to pass a background check before you can work with our clients, you know, like our community programs or access sensitive data. But you can start training right away by showing up in our uh, either our studio or remotely via uh, our Jitsi self-hosted server, private server, and just start participating and start gaming. That's how we have people from around the world learning to do this. Uh, and then to give back, we want you to either show up as a player to help the other GMs train or help with our community programs either as a GM or a facilitator some other role to help these community programs help many other people. Uh, we know that our community programs lower the crime rate in the neighborhoods that we run them. Um, we get immediate feedback from the businesses. Uh, for example, one community program um, they were running all sorts of youth programs. They run them all six days a week. They're really well-funded. They're another 51 c 3 We have a wonderful relationship with them. And uh, they had to cut back the programs to end at 5.30 instead of 7 p.m. unless the parents are there to chaperone that last uh, hour and a half. Um, and because they were having problems with the kids being out in the streets, hucking rocks, stealing stuff, loitering in front of businesses, et cetera, and getting a lot of complaints in the neighborhood except ours. And this isn't just kids, this is adults as well. Those in our programs, for some reason, all that trouble just disappears when our programs are running. And so the businesses and everybody else, so, so at that facility, they cut back everybody else to 5.30. Ours is the only activity, and we've been there for three years, that has not been cut back. We still have the full-time slot and everything. So There are so many options. It's yes. just amazing. And, uh, by the way, if you're socially isolated right now and you're looking for a little bit of social interaction, we are offering totally free. If you go to rpsresearch.com forward slash events, uh, all, I'm trying to get all our volunteers to, that are GM trainees at different levels to host games. And we've got, like, 20 different games to pick from that you can sign up. It's easy as 1, 2, 3, go. Um, you download a character sheet. You download and read our code of conduct and agree to it. And you download the, one of the free rule books if you don't have one of your own. Um, And then at the appointed time, you just click the big green Go button and you join on our Gypsy server, log in, and the GM will be there waiting for you and run you through a game for three or four or five hours, whatever the session is. And we're trying to keep those available, excuse me, as many days as possible during the crisis to help people get through uh, this isolation with a wonderful social activity. Now, those are not therapy. These are volunteer community programs but it does have an intrinsic benefit for people participating in socializing and it's cooperative
0: yeah it's really exciting that you're running those programs well hawk it has been amazing to talk to you um i really appreciate your time and uh...
1: dude no i never heard from brian
2: (laughs) i was just absorbing
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah enjoy the fire hose (laughs) of information I'm infamous for it, and I do mean infamous, not famous. <laughs> but did you have any questions or or, or anything, Brian, or, or, or already before we wrap up? Um,
2: no, actually, I had a li- I had a series of questions, and you answered every one of them during
1: the conversation. Yeah, so I've I was been. Th- like, All righty, then. I've been through this a few <laughs> times.
2: <laughs> I was like, which which type of. G's situations are best for which kind?
1: Okay, yeah. there we go. Yeah. There's that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Been doing this a while. <laughs> yep. It takes me a while to get there. my Phone
2: going up. Uh, next question. Let's see. Nope. Mark
1: that one off. no nope. Mark okay. that one off. No. Mark,
2: okay. mark that one off. Okay. okay. Good. We're good. All right. I'm glad I was to hear that.
1: Well, I'm glad I was able to address those, because that means for other people that it'll be the same as well. So that's good. Right. Yeah. Excellent. And if anybody has questions, uh, just email info at rpgresearch.com. And we're on Twitter. We're on everywhere on social media. So if you just go to any social media generally, like twitter.com forward slash rpgresearch, facebook.com forward slash rpgresearch, tumblr.com forward slash rpgresearch, instagram.com forward slash rpgresearch, do you see a pattern? (laughs) (laughs)
0: Thank you so much, Hawk. I, I really appreciate it, and thank you. Uh, I, I look forward to the feedback we get from this episode. You know, the goal is to highlight and bring to bring to people's notice all these great pieces of work that are going on, and uh, we're not operating in silos, even though we might think we are. So,
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, just exciting to to have the research to back all the stuff we've been talking about.
1: Mm-hmm. And and the caveats we have, we do know of two groups who were professional therapists in two different states uh, in the last couple of years, who took our data but did not go through our peer review process of the training and such. They just grabbed all the data and tried to do their own thing. And these are professionals, licensed professionals. Both programs did harm. They did harm. So please go through our training. It's free. You just need to volunteer and do four hours a week. If you need a faster training, go to RPG Therapeutics. We've got online options there. You can go through a one to three-day intensive workshop, and you know for professionals, and and you know for between hundred dollars to two thousand dollars, depending upon the workshop, get get a you know get this fire hose very intensely with lots of hands-on. But it's even better through RPG Research because you get a lot, you get even more hands-on experience. Please, we've we've been doing this for decades. You can do this wrong. Uh, I'll give you a quick example before we say goodbye because this is so critical. Uh, uh, Eagle Peak Schools is part of the Spokane Public School District here in Washington State. Uh, This is a last chance school. So each district, like Mead District, has Mead Alternative School. Uh, You know, Shadle Alternative School. And so kids who are struggling for various reasons, whether it's cognitive impairments or mental health issues or abuse and drugs and what have you, uh, they end up in the alternative school. Well, the kids who aren't making it in that alternative school, they still get one more chance by being uh, transferred over to Eagle Peak. And Eagle Peak specializes uh, between 4th and 12th grade, they have about 100 or so kids. And the classrooms are really tiny, like 8-9 students, you know, really high teacher-to-student ratio, or rather than student-to-teacher ratio. But these kids are really at high risk. They had two teachers there highly trained, been doing this for years, they know how to do this, and they were gamers of eight or ten years of experience. So they tried to take these two knowledge domains and what they could find out on the web from some others floating around out there and tried to implement their own after school program. And it started out okay, but eventually it led to flipped tables, assaulted people, and lockdown. They had to shut the program down. But they were still convinced from our research and that that this is a good thing. So they asked us to come in and do a presentation. We address the principals and all the parents' concerns from all the inculcated myths. And they're like, okay, great. We want you to run a weekly program. Well, as volunteers, that's a little bit too high risk for our volunteers. So I had to refer them to the RPG therapeutics professionals where I have them trained. They're under you know heavy supervision. They're also therapists, et cetera, um, for such a high risk population. And that took weeks or a couple of months really to get into the school district paperwork and everything. But once we got underway, we did a six-month program just last year, and it went phenomenally well, as so far all our programs have, thankfully. And um, the teachers would come in just in awe. They're like the kids who are in this program, and it wasn't a lot of them, but you know, it was it was it was a fair number, their behavior over the weeks radically improved. They learned, we were talking about pre-mac principal, they learned how to hold on to themselves and get through the boring, tedious stuff of the day so that they wouldn't lose their privileges to be in the game session at the end of the day, to get that intrinsic reward of how wonderful the sessions were. And some of these kids are barely ADIQ, have significant impairments. Some of them don't eat on the weekends when they're not at school. During spring break, they generally starve. These kids really struggle. And they learned to self-regulate because of the game, because there's things in the game that teach them that. It helps them develop Uh, more resilience and develop more grit and character and helps them uh, uh, develop better coping mechanisms and socialize for people who are barely speaking anymore because they're so traumatized in their lives. Um, We know how to do this and we are happy to share this with everybody. Please, people don't go off half-cocked, especially with at-risk populations. It's not a problem with regular populations. You can run these games all day long and it'll be fine. There's nothing dangerous about the games. But with at-risk populations, there are some tips and tricks you need to learn from us, and you need to take the time to learn it. We will eventually have some books out. We're working on it. We have best practices of each population uh, based on uh, World Health Organization ICF and ICD codes, International Classification of Function, International Classification of Disability, um, but it, it's a massive project. Meanwhile, we're getting ready to release some small workbooks to go through the Level 1 and Level 2 training that will help you get the info put together. But just sign up and volunteer and learn. And you know, and we can help you put a program together. We've helped people all around the world put programs together. But please be careful if you're planning to do this on your own with at-risk populations. Please talk to us first.
0: Yeah, DM responsibly. That's, that's the trick there. Yep. Again, thanks so much for talking to us. We will look forward to talking to you again soon. Um, and for everybody else out there, keep on rolling for change. Thanks for listening to Rolling for Change. We're a proud member of the Geek Therapy Network. Geek Therapy provides a great space for geeks from all walks of life to gather and discuss the amazing content that we engage with, whether it's movies, books, games, comics, etc. You can find the like-minded souls at geektherapy.com forward slash discord. You can also find more information about the network over at network.geektherapy.com. Our theme music was kindly provided to us by Rocket Scientists. Find more of their amazing music at bandcamp.com forward slash rocket scientists. If you'd like to talk to the Rolling for Change crew, you can find us at gamers at rollingforchange.com. Again, thanks so much for listening and keep on rolling for change.